0: And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's life giving word to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 2 today, starting in verse 1, working through uh, the first 12 verses of John 2. Uh, thankful for. Uh, The church planting interest meeting we have after church. So if you haven't uh, made plans to attend that, you can. And by all means, we'd love for you to explore ways that you can support the effort in Arlington, whether that's by prayer or by maybe even becoming part of the small group there that's going to form this church plant in the days to come. Love for you to uh, stick around for that uh, downstairs in the club. Um, well, uh, like, like most of you, uh, Friday night was kind of uh, just, a, well, in some ways it wasn't, I'm going to say, a, a normal night. It actually wasn't very normal for me because Marsha was out of town, which meant I had the three girls and I was surviving, all right? Um, but, but anyway, after I survived and got the girls to bed, uh, I jumped on Instagram and uh, saw this, uh, this picture of the Eiffel Tower with a scripture beside it and just thought, well, you know, that's good, I like that, and... But they started to scroll down and started to see all these pictures of Paris, all these pictures of the Eiffel Tower in the form of these peace uh, signs, and so immediately knew something must be going on. So I jumped over to CNN.com and caught the horrific news of what had happened there uh, at the hands of ISIS. And so just I'm curious, um, maybe what were some of the adjectives that came to your mind as you absorbed this news? What were some of the maybe descriptors that you heard as you combed uh, the news channels and the news uh, sites over the past couple of days? These were barbaric and cowardly acts. These acts were sickening, appalling, Blood curdling evil, a- absolutely her- horrific. Now, I want to just think about that for a moment, and, and then ask a larger question because I think this can be helpful not only as we process this news, but as we really re- we process all news. Okay. Um, why do we just kind of naturally respond like that? Why is it the reflex of the world? The, the world. Not just people in Boston who experienced the marathon bombing a, a few years ago. I mean, This is the reflex of the world. This is appalling. This is abominable. Why do we respond like that? Well, one, because it's, it's right. We, we respond this way because as those, I believe, made in the image of God who have a sense of, of moral capacity, we know that there is right and wrong, and this, this is not right. It's certainly wrong. But, but, but in addition to that, to go a little deeper, why do we respond in this way? It's because deep down, God has made us for something better. God has made us to experience that which is good, beautiful, and true. And that which is good, beautiful, and true is that which is glorious. So anytime we experience something in life that reeks of that which is contrary to the good, beautiful, and true then we should rightly be repulsed by that. It should take us back. And that is what has happened over these couple of days. And so I think to to live our lives rightly, to really respond in the ways that we should respond, when we see something as repulsive as this, or conversely, when we see something that is absolutely spellbindingly amazing because there is something glorious in it, then we need to understand that which is glorious. We need to understand what, what, what glory really is and, and what, what, what evil uh, really is. So this morning, John chapter two is going to help us with this. This is, as, as John mentioned earlier, this is the the first sign uh, of Jesus in this gospel that uh, that will kind of run them through the first twelve chapters. Seven episodes like this that kind of grab our attention and pull us into who Jesus is. So if you would read verses one through twelve with me uh, in John chapter two, this is what. Uh, The gospel uh, writer John writes, here here we go. Uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, to the top. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Now, this this story is a quite fascinating story. A lot of elements are going on here that we need to kind of recognize, okay? Uh, Number one, weddings, just in case you, you didn't know, are kind of a big deal. All right um, they're a big deal in our culture, American culture. I mean weddings, if uh, we have some of you that are planning, you either just got married or you're planning, so you know the 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 amount of details that go into that and and what a special occasion it is, so we want to really pour some effort uh, into that and and then kind of take a deep breath after it 's over, like thank God we, we did it, we made it, you know, made it through that awesomeness um, but 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 for for as, as special as Weddings are in American culture, in Jewish culture in the first century, um, they were even uh, so much more significant, okay? Uh, Weddings would go on uh, for days, sometimes up to a week. Uh, There would be a wedding feast and guests would arrive on each successive day. This was a huge deal uh, there uh, in in, uh, Jesus' day. And so we find that Jesus and his disciples and his mother were invited to be guests at this wedding, probably much like the weddings that we attend. Uh, it seems that these were friends of the family. And as the story goes, um, things were going really, really well until a really, really big problem happened, and that is they ran out of wine to drink. Now, some, some scholars would, would, would tell us this. This was, for the bridegroom, this was a social Catastrophe. You see, we, we value hospitality to a degree in America, but, but hospitality for a first century Jew um, was, was um, one of the supreme virtues. And so you, you throw on top of that virtue of hospitality with hospitality at your wedding, and this is like to the nth degree, okay? So this is, I mean, social catastrophe, major embarrassment to the bridegroom and his family, as well as it, it is said that uh, there could have even been legal ramifications, all right? So so there could have been charges actually brought to this family to say look you you didn't provide in such a way that is culturally acceptable and there're going to be some consequences to this. So can you imagine after you know a saying I do to say to tell your bride like I love you uh, but I'm going to prison, all right? Just uh, wouldn't have been, you know, kind of a good thing. Um but, but 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 so this was a major deal and is it at this moment that the mother of Jesus Stepped up to the plate. You see, she, she, she was just being a good friend, you know. And she said, you know, I'm not have the resources to go and, and buy, you know, barrels of wine to bring into this festivity. But I do know someone who has divine power. Oh, he's my son. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go have a conversation with him. And so she goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, they have no wine. Now, now certainly she's implying, Jesus, they have no wine, and I need you to do something about that. And Jesus, in verse 4, says somewhat abruptly, it it feels like in our translation, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, Now, I know you just heard that through American ears, right? Like, English translation, woman, you know, like... Woman? <laughs> all right. <laughs> G- Jesus was, was actually being respectful here, okay? In, in Aramaic, all right, the language Jesus spoke, it would have been more like madam or ma'am. All right, So, so um, Jesus is being respectful of his mother, but at the same time, he's clearly making the point, and we can see this in the other Gospels, that Jesus was, though he loved and honored his mother, was working on the timetable of his heavenly Father. And so he follows up the, the question with his question, and then to say, um, My hour has not yet come. So, so what is this? What is this like we're, we're going through 21 chapters of, of John, so we really need to understand this phrase, the significance of this phrase, my hour has not yet come. Uh, in the Gospel of John, recorded nine times is this phrase, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has come. And then you say that six times. It's a really, really important phrase. What does he mean? When Jesus refers to the hour, his time, He's referring to the hour of his coming glorification, check this out, through death, by crucifixion, and then in exaltation through his resurrection. And so this is the, the timing that Jesus is operating on. He was born to die. He was given. He was, uh, he gave his his life for the sake of others uh, so that they might be brought into the life of God. So this is what was consuming uh, Christ and his mission. And so why would why would then Jesus say, like, my hour's not yet come at the, the wedding of Cana, right? That's a great question. And, and here's what would happen, okay? Jesus knew people, right? He knew, he knew people better than people knew people, right? So, so Jesus knew that whenever... People started to catch a glimpse of his divine power and his glory, that they would then want to manipulate it for their own purposes. And and we, we still do this today. God, we get really devotional when times are tough. Like God, I really need you now. Like I'll I'll do this if you just do that and. And so, so Jesus knew this. And we can see this even as we fast forward to, to John chapter 6, uh, where he feeds 5,000 people uh, just with some, some crumbs, five, five loaves and two fish. And, 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 you know, that's kind of a big deal. Everyone agree? Yeah, big deal. Um, so, so, so the multiplication was so great, they collected uh, leftovers, if you will, of t- they made up 12 baskets full. Okay, and and this is what it says happened in verses 13 to 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people had their own agenda. They had their own purposes. They wanted to make Jesus an earthly king who would do away with the Romans and bring in all of their expectations and hopes. And Jesus says, like, I will do that. I will get to that in due time, but I am not the king that that you thought I would be. So Jesus says, my, my hour has not yet come in John chapter 2. He, he essentially says it again in John chapter 6 just by withdrawing uh, from the crowds. Um, so in spite of Jesus' concern, his hour has not yet come, Mary, it seems in faith, trusting that Jesus would, would rise to the occasion and meet the need, she tells the servants, do what he says, and Jesus does what needs to be done. He told the servants to fill six stone water jars, and miraculously, he changes the water into wine. Now, now why would John include this story right off the bat to, to begin to tell people of who Jesus is? I hope today we'll we'll all understand that this story is a story about the glory of Christ. This story is a story about the glory of Christ. We will not understand who God is. We will not understand who we are. And we will not understand how to live our lives if we do not understand this fundamental truth of the glory of God, the glory of Christ. So I want to give you three encouragements centered around this idea of glory, okay? Uh, Number one, revel in Jesus as the glory of God made known. Revel in Jesus as the glory of God made known. Verse 11 is the key verse for this entire story, okay. And John points this out. He makes it explicit. In case we missed just what just happened, um, John makes it super explicit. And he says that this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. There is no doubt that this is a key verse for understanding all of what is about to come in the gospel of John. In fact, we could say this is kind of like a programmatic statement. All of the signs that Jesus is going to perform through the gospel of John, we should always remember this verse that every time Jesus performs a sign, he is manifesting his glory. And so, well, Tanner, what is a sign? What have what, what what all this talk about signs, okay? Why doesn't John, it seems like, okay, just see if you agree. If you can turn... 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine with, with no, like, tampering, no just, like, it's water when you pour it in, you draw it out, it's wine. Okay, I'm just going to call that one a miracle. Is that okay? Can you, like, can we agree? All right, this is the claim of, of the Bible. This is, this is miraculous. Why doesn't John just call it a miracle? He could do that when John, you know, he could change the, the when, when Jesus, the, the first of his miracles, well, see, John's a clever writer. This, this, the, the language of sign certainly alludes to a miracle. It alludes to the miraculous things that Jesus was doing as he walked the earth. But it also points past the miracle itself to the greater reality that the, the miracle is pointing to. That's what a sign does, right? I mean, a a sign... It's is not the substance of what we're looking for. It's just it's just a pointer to what we hope to experience. So, for, for example, I don't know, maybe some of our Tufts students here. Uh, Tufts, great university. Okay, I would have never gotten in Tufts, by the way. I'm just saying, all right, don't, don't hate. It's, it's just the truth. Um, but, but anyway, I can imagine if I would have gotten into Tufts, and I would have come to Boston, you know, like 10 years earlier, would have, would have been cool. Um, and, and kind of coming into the city for the first time and seeing... The sign, Tufts University, um, I can imagine that there was like a little bit of excitement when you saw that sign for the first time. Is this true? Maybe a little bit? I hope so. Yeah? Yeah, I'm seeing. Okay, good. So, so, so I, I assume that all of you that were a little excited about that didn't, didn't stop and hang out at the sign, grab your books, call the professor in. Right? The sign only pointed to the greater reality of the campus and these wonderful four or whatever years you're going to spend here at Tufts. Um, That's what a sign does, it points ahead. And so Jesus, now, just like John the Baptist, just like Andrew, just like Philip in chapter one, uh, they were pointing to Christ. And now Jesus, by his own works, is pointing to himself. In these works, they are telling a story. They are they are pointing to uh, his greatness, and specifically, they are manifesting his glory. So, so let's understand this phrase: manifesting glory. What what is that? Maybe manifest isn't a word you use like every, in every conversation with your friends. What, what does manifest mean? It means to reveal. It means to make known. It means to make apparent. It means to show something off so that people that that maybe didn't see it before, now all of a sudden they can see that which was hidden. And so to manifest is to make known, to reveal. And what is Jesus making known in these signs? He is making known his glory. Now what what is glory? You hear us talk about it all the time, like if you've been around Redemption Hill very long, Redemption Hill Church exists what? Hmm. Oh, come on now. Don't make a pastor sad. You know what I'm saying? That ain't that ain't going. We exist too. Oh, there we go. Thank you. I did. I know it's hard, it's hard to you know get that little feedback going on. Yes, we exist to glorify God. what what, what, is, what does this mean? I want you to consider this, and I, I haven't really, I told you, studying John chapter 1 was so good to kind of begin to see that the entire gospel of John is one huge glory parade, okay? it's just like 21 chapters revealing who Christ is, and Christ is glorious. So everything we see, every sign, every teaching, it's all pointing to the glory of Christ. 21 chapters worth. John 1.14, look back at it if you have your Bible there. Uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh. The Son of God became uh, man and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And what does John say? And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So, so, so just, just as a preview, when, when we see Jesus heal an official son, When we see him feed 5,000, when we see him raising Lazarus from the dead, these are all fireworks going off, pointing to the glory of Christ. When Jesus is about to be crucified that week, what is his prayer? Father, glorify your name. And the father speaks back and he says, "I, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. What is glory? The glory of God is the going public of his intrinsic perfections. The glory of God is the going public of his intrinsic perfections. Glory is the outshining of eternal excellence. It is the revelation of God's infinite worth. Glory is the beauty of God and the splendor of God made visible. Sam Storms put it, puts it this way. He says that glory is, all right, check this out, the external manifestation of inherent excellence. You got that? External manifestation of inherent excellence. So, so when, we, when we say Jesus is the glory of God, he is making known who God is in his inherent perfections. And so when we say that Jesus is making his own glory known, then we're saying the same thing, that, that he is, the, the, the intrinsic perfections that he possesses are, are actually coming out for people to see who he really is. This is not just an ordinary man. This is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And so there is this scene, okay? I hope you'll remember this today. There is this scene in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah gets this, this vision of the throne of God. And in this vision, he he sees these angels, okay, that are that are crying out with thunderous voices back and forth around the throne of God. And, and what do they say? They say this holy, holy, holy. To emphasize it as much as they possibly holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But then this doesn't make sense. Holy, holy, holy the, uh, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his ho- holiness, right? I mean, that, that would make more sense. That is unless if glory is the going public of his holiness, his intrinsic perfections. The, the word holy means uh, set apart, other than. If we're talking about the holiness of God, I hope you're tracking with me here. Uh, we're talking about the otherness of God. God is in a class by himself, and this is actually one of the reasons why I believe in the existence of God. Because I'm just, I'm just kind of not content with saying, um, no offense to you and even to, to me, all right, that, that man is as is, is good as it gets. Like, are, are we the epitome of creation? Are, 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 we, are we kind of the end game? Like, it's never going to get better or more glorious than, than human beings? I'm just saying, live with me a week and you're going to want something more, you know? I mean, so, so I think that's even a, an argument for this, God isn't a class by himself. He is, he is other than, he is supreme. And so when we experience something that excites our senses, all right, that, that moves our feelings and our affections, and then hopefully what we realize is that we were, we were made for that which is glorious because we were made for God and he is alone glorious. God made us to know him in his glory. He made us to to behold, right, behold the Lamb of God. He made us to behold his glory, to see his glory, to fix our minds and our hearts on his glory. And when we we live this way, this is really good. When we live this way, it changes absolutely everything about us. So we should revel, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, take a glance, um, not just kind of enjoy just for a few, like we should revel in the glory of God made known in Jesus Christ. So we're just studying the gospel of John. And I'm saying for, for the next, you know, roughly, I think we're about 36 more weeks in the gospel of John. Okay, we'll hit a couple breaks. But I'm just saying every time we're in the gospel of John, every time you open up the gospel of John in your own reading, you're just in a story of glory. I didn't plan to say that. I, I, that rhymed, but that was good. I'm going to write that right? All right. Um, so, so we... We, we see this further than as we consider how we should revel in the glory of Christ's power to affect change. All right, so, so to kind of drill down, what are we specifically seeing here? That Jesus has the power to, to really affect change, and that is how we see, uh, in, in part, his glory. All right, so what is the miracle here? It's, it's, it's been stated, Jesus turns water into wine. So I just want to hit a sidebar here for a moment and talk about uh, fermented beverages, all right? Um, so, so Jesus miraculously, cha- miraculously changes this, uh, these 180 gallons of water into wine. And, and we need to understand, that's why we read Amos 9 to begin the service, that wine was uh, viewed as a gift of God. Okay, uh, go back and read Psalm 104, and we're going to see that, that wine was uh, something that was a sign of joy and celebration. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that they are partaking of wine here um, in this wedding feast. Um, now, Jesus, um, he, he turned the water into wine, okay, for, for multiple reasons, okay? One, to honor the, the bridegroom and, and, and the bride and their families, okay, because, again, this was social catastrophe. Um, number two, he, he turned the water into wine to enhance the celebration of the moment, okay? But, but he did not turn water into wine so that they could keep drinking to the point of drunkenness. That was not what Jesus was doing here. And so you say, well, how do you, how do you know that? Okay, because like it's all throughout the scriptures, okay, that, that um, it appears clearly that social, a social drink of wine or some kind of fermented beverage is permissible, all right? But drunkenness is not. Drunkenness is not permissible. It is prohibited. We saw this in Ephesians at the beginning of the year, chapter 5, verse 18, that says, do not get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with The Spirit. Fill yourself up not with wine, but fill yourself up with the Spirit of God. A really good truth. And so so then we we ask the question, this isn't as as big of a deal in the Northeast as it is in maybe in some other parts of of the country in terms of the church and Christians, but um, should Christians then uh, abstain? If they should abstain from drunkenness, which is absolutely true, should they abstain from alcohol, period? Um, What about that? Well, here's just the deal um, number one biblically. I, I, you show me a verse that prohibits uh, social, social drinking, and and I'll follow you right there. Okay. So so what I see is some some of my Christian friends actually abstain from alcohol totally as a matter of their conscience, and primarily probably what is driving that conscience is a concern for the people around them that it might cause them to kind of stumble into some erroneous ways so i applaud my christian brothers and sisters who say i'm for the sake of my conscience and for the sake of my christian friends and family and those around me maybe who don't even know christ uh, i'm going to abstain from alcohol and then i have other christian friends who would partake of a social drink on occasion. And, and to that, I can also say, okay, I see that in Scripture. As long as we're doing it with wisdom principles, then to me, there's not an issue. And so what I would, what I would say is this. Uh, whether you're drinking a cup of coffee or a cup of orange juice or a cup of fermented grape juice, you should take a sip to the glory of God. Some, some, of you, some of you smile there, and I hope you get that, all right? In everything that we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. So if you can't, if you cannot take a, a glass of wine to the glory of God, in fact, if you can't take a glass of water, and that could be problematic. Um, maybe I shouldn't say that. How about orange juice? We'll go, you need to drink water, all right? We'll, we'll get you there. We'll get you there on the glory piece, all right? Drink water, but, but you, you get the point, right? We are to do all things to the glory of God. And you say, like, Tanner, okay, this is like, this is like you know, uh, church speak, all right? This is pastor talk, you know, all things to the glory of God. Yeah, I mean, I know Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10.31, but like, what does that mean for me practically? Okay, here's just a few thoughts and i love this right uh, number 1 uh, in everything that we do we are to recognize all things in life as a gracious gift from god so those those coffee beans that come from the the you know the the the, tr- the farm you know in guatemala or rwanda or wherever those you know like we we, we recognize that god actually provided that and he's given us created things not to abuse but to enjoy to his glory and, and then um, he's he's given us created uh, goods so that we can we can like our taste buds hopefully are, are, are kind of sounding off when we uh, have a, a sip of a drink that we enjoy, um, and that is pointing us to to this this greater kind of story as well. But but here's what I really want you to think about, okay. Um, we, we should, and I hope this will be, there. I want this to be increasingly true in my life. We should see every created good as a window to behold the glory of God. You say, well, 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 what do I I mean by that? Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards. I know I quoted this just like five sermons ago, right? But we can never hear it enough, I don't think, all right? So this this is what Edwards says about the glory of God and the enjoyment of created things. All right, here we go. He says this, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. When we we get this, when we are worshiping truly when glory looks beyond the shadows to the substance glory looks beyond the, the scattered beams and the streams to the sun and to the ocean and so he, he, here's here's the point a glass of wine is a window a glass of orange juice is a window. A, a cup of coffee is a window. Our friendships are windows. A husband, a window. A, a, a wife, a window. When the Patriots beat up on the Giants this afternoon, all right? That, we got Tom Brady and Eli here today, all right? Reggie, I love you, but you're going down, son. All right, so... um It's a window. Our work, and I know some of you don't view your work this way, and I'm just, let's let's pray about that, all right? Let's, let's, I'm serious. Let's really work through this because, because the 9 to 5 or the, the, the 10 to 8 or whatever, like work is a window. One of my friends, his name's Matt. He, he's helped me understand this even more, okay? Well, This is what he says. He says, idolatry is looking to the world. Worship is looking through the world. You got that? Idolatry is looking to created goods and saying, this is it. This is what I was made for. This is the end of my enjoyment and satisfaction. But worship is enjoying these created goods and saying, wait, there is something beyond it. There is something behind it. The source of this pleasure and satisfaction is found in God himself. So all of these created goods, don't look to them, look through them. They are just a window for us to bring greater glory to God. And so water to wine, that was, that was not the main point of what Jesus was doing there. Okay? Like, Jesus doesn't do these miracles just for like, wow, look at that. That's cool. You know, wow, I want to see that again. Okay? Like, no, Jesus is doing these things to point to the greater realities of who he is. And he has the power to not just physica- change and transform physical properties, but he has the ability to change people. And even systems, okay, so we don't have time to get into it, but if you, if you go and you kind of read these guys that are a lot smarter than me, they would say that there is maybe an illusion here, maybe not conclusively, but there is an illusion to these six jars of water that were for purification. This is a clearly what it says. We just read it in John chapter two. And so it seems to be an illusion to say, look, The old ritual system under the law, the ways that you used to become clean, Jesus now is replacing the old system with his new system. He's replacing the old covenant with the new covenant. Full of grace, full of truth, full of himself. You don't have to keep offering the sacrifice. I'm the final sacrifice. You don't have to do 1001 things to make yourself clean. I make you clean. And on and on we could go. Revel in the glory of Christ's power to effect change. And then finally, um, what should this all lead us to? It should lead us to belief and faith, which is point number three. Receive the glory of Christ by believing in him. I told you verse 11 is the key verse. Read it one more time. This the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What happens when we see the glory of God made known? Go public, shine forth, radiate it should ignite our faith. It should cause us to more deeply believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That's what, it, what should happen when we behold glory. So, so I just want to ask you, have you seen Christ as glorious? Have you beheld who he is and said, you know, there is, there is no one like him. He is in a class by himself. No other person could live this perfect life and be the, the proper substitute for my sin and the penalty of my sin against God. No one else could rise from the dead by his own power. Only Christ. Christ. And so this is the invitation for us. The invitation is for us to come to Christ who invites us. I'm not going to go and read Matthew 22. It's in my notes. I'm just going to pause on that. All right. But basically, there is a parable that Jesus gives of a wedding feast in Matthew 22. And he says that, that... the invitation went to many people to come into the feast, but they started making excuses. Man, I've got this to do and that to do. And then, and then they actually killed the servants who were coming to bring the invitation. And so that doesn't d- deter God in the parable, but he just, he just says, okay, uh, they will receive justice, but um, you go out into the streets, into the, to the alleys, into the hedges, and, and you keep inviting more people to come in. And so this is the invitation to all of us today, whether for the first time and you've been kind of thinking about, man, who is Jesus and I'm kind of exploring who he is. Um, Maybe that's you today and you're just like, I want to receive the glory of Christ in my life today. Or if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you have the same need as the person I just described. We're, We're all in the same boat. We all need to receive his glory and to believe in him more deeply. And so the invitation today is is simply this. See the glory of Christ. Receive the glory of Christ. And live for the glory of Christ. Let me end with this. I I absolutely love that the first sign Jesus performs, it's at a celebration, right? Right? A wedding is a time of joy, festivity, celebration. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and as, as it turns out, the very first sign is done at this celebration. Well, this, this invitation that we all are, are invited to is one unending, continuous, mysterious celebration The kingdom of God is one huge celebration. What God invites us to is not dull. It's not monotonous. It is, if you will, an incredible party for us to come to and to enjoy. And so we don't like, we don't, we don't get up here each week and just invite you to something that might kind of be nice. There's nothing, there's nothing dull here. There's nothing boring here. It is joy and satisfaction and celebration because of the glory of Christ. And so G.K. Chesterton puts it uh, this way in his book, Orthodoxy. Listen to this. I I love this. Um, He says this, if a man says that extinction, some would say this, "is, is better than existence or blank existence is better than variety and adventure, then I can do nothing for him. I have nothing to offer that man. But, this is what he says, but nearly all the people I have ever met would agree to the general proposition that we need this life of practical romance. The combination of something that is strange with something that is secure. We need so to view the world as to combine the idea of wonder and an idea of welcome. We need to be happy in this wonderland without once being merely comfortable. And Chesterton says, this is the achievement of Christianity. This is the achievement of Christ. If you're looking for something safe and secure and stable, I'm just saying we already sang about it today, the rock won't move. God is secure. He is immovable. He is constant. So we all want safety and security. We need that, but we don't, we don't simply need that. We also need something that will enthrall us, something that will move us, something that will cause us to celebrate. And there is unending, unanticipated joys around every corner when you choose to follow Christ. Christ. Infinite depths of surprise are here in him. Infinite depths of elation are here in him. Their unending duck boat parades in him. He is the victory tour. His is the reign of glory. So let's look not to these created things, as good as they may be. Let's look through them to the one who is glorious and live for his glory every day. Father, thank you so much.